Welcome to Donuts with Dudes, Episode 7. It's June 19th, baby. For our first topic today, we're going to be discussing his Aaronist Michael Jordan himself. A pair of his historic shoes have auctioned off for over a million dollars. Cha-ching. And for our second story today, here's something you may need to remember. Down, bottom, up, bottom, down, bottom, bottom. Down, bottom, up, bottom. No, bro, that ain't it. Anyways, you're going to need to learn that, and we'll get into more of that here later in the show. But for our last story, we're going to be discussing all things UFOs. Are they out there? Are they amongst us? We're going to be discussing some of the most recent stories surrounding extraterrestrials and what we know as of today. But first, get with that intro song, Anthony. Let's get it. Welcome to Donuts with Dudes, where we dive into the things that matter most to men, like sports, business, and mental conditioning. But we don't stop there. We also incorporate health topics, because being a well-rounded dude means taking care of yourself. We're your hosts, Anthony and Cameron, and we're excited to bring you this show, where we discuss hot topics and interview experts in their field, real dudes just like you. So sit back, grab a donut and maybe some coffee, and join us in the bakery. And for our first story today, we're talking about a childhood icon. We got an icon that was a big deal. If you grew up in the 80s and 90s, the Jordan shoes, those things, when they, when they walked into a, a schoolroom back in the day, man, when, especially when Anthony and I were growing up, these shoes had an aura around them, man. Bro, they were, they were head turners, man, for sure. Those things, man. And, and it's one of those... Uh... Greatest player alive things, too, man. Yes. Stamp the deal. The man's the goat. Absolutely. Goat. Leaving it there. Yes. However, man, these shoes, even though they were a big deal in the 80s and 90s, obviously they still carry a a huge impact today, man. I was, I probably have this number off at this certain point in time. Obviously, the movie Air just came out. Yeah. Starring Matt Damon, Ben Affleck. I fell asleep. Oh, really, dude? But yeah, it was kind of late, though. I mean, that's, I blame uh, just the time that we turned it on. It was like 1130 at night. It had been after a long day, and we were trying to watch it, and we fell asleep, man. It was just after a long day. Man, I thought the movie was really engaging, really good, and I, and I liked the way that the movie was, is more geared around the business side of how the Jordan came into being, right? The Air Jordan. So I think the number is to this day that, it has generated over $30 billion or $3 billion in revenue. I'll have to check that. But the story that we want to jump into, it has to do with what's going on surrounding the flu game shoe. Yeah, man. It's crazy. Just today, those flu game shoes actually just went at an auction, dude, for $1.38 million. That is crazy. But it's not the first time he's had some shoes go for a crazy amount. But if you guys are unfamiliar with the flu game, Back in 1997, there was the NBA Finals. It was Game 5, Chicago Bulls versus the Utah Jazz. And Michael Jordan wasn't feeling 100% that game, man. So, you know, they call it the flu game because he was experiencing flu-like symptoms. Still managed to score 38 points, and the Bulls won 90-88. to Shows you how hard that guy works. Goat. Goat, bro. Goat. For sure. But... The jazz ball boy. So get this, right? His name was Preston Thomas. 
And uh, he was a ball boy for that game. And throughout that game, he was uh, giving Michael Jordan graham crackers, applesauce, snacks, just to help keep him, you know, in the game, bro. And like, I guess, you know, fueled. Well, after the game, uh, Thomas asked Jordan, what are you going to do with those shoes? And Michael Jordan said, do you want them? And he said, absolutely. So, you know, Michael Jordan signed the shoes and gave them to him, man. Thomas later sold those sneakers in 2013 for $104,000. And so now it was just recently resold for $1.38 million? Yes. Um, so a couple of things, man. Michael Jordan, you know, being the GOAT, some, it depends, I guess, if you've seen uh, The Last Dance and all that. Not everybody has the um, highest appreciation for him, as you can see, you know, uh, just throughout it. But uh, you know, a lot of haters, too. You know? Yeah. You know, when you're the greatest, you're going to have haters. And that just comes with the territory. Even more proof, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I like the, the story behind the, the flu game. And he tells the story that the night before the game, Got, he ordered a pizza before, like the night before, they ordered a pizza, him and I, I guess whoever was staying with him in the room, ate it, and like 30, 45 minutes later, he's throwing up, he's feeling terrible, got, got fever, all kinds of stuff, man. So there is an assumption, and I think this is from Michael Jordan's mouth in that documentary, but that some, t- some Utah Jazz fan tried to poison him. Oh, yeah. I did hear that, too, man. But, you know, a couple things, dude. If you're thinking about who's the GOAT and you got those guys, uh, you got Jordan, Kobe, LeBron. Think about this. Who's the only person that has these shoes that are, you know, he's retired and they can re-release these shoes and still have the same effect as the original drop date. But uh, this does remind me, man, of a real funny story just saying about all of this with the with the longevity of these shoes, bro. I remember in 1995. When the, uh, I think it was 95, I was in the third grade, man, and the Jordan 5s came out and um, had them on my wish list. Um, and, my, you know, I think I got all A's a couple of times and my dad was like, man, what do you want? And I told him I wanted the, the Jordan 5s. They had the, uh, they were red, they were white, red, and black, and they had a 23 on the side. Well, sure enough, man, my dad surprised me one day. He uh, came to my lunch um, cafeteria and brought me the box of shoes and it was a big ordeal, man. And it, I remember getting those shoes and putting them on in the in the cafeteria and all the whole the whole cafeteria was like watching and just like in awe of these shoes because there was only two pairs in the whole school mine and then a buddy of mine but um third graders dude just you know trying to have that drip man my my story is exactly the same bro like it's almost copying your story man obviously I, for our crowd I'm a few years younger than Anthony and I, I'm going to go ahead and claim that <laughs> so when I had my first pair of Jordans was also in the third grade. However, mine were the Jordan 11s. They were the, the holographic or hologram looking Jordan when you had it all wrapped around the whole entire shoe. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, those were, that was black and part of it was red. And I remember my aunt showing up to my classroom. I don't know why she showed up to my classroom to do this. But anyways, I, I was pulled out of class. And she gave me these shoes and I remember walking back in the class, just like feeling like I was walking on air, man. And everybody just being like, oh, yeah. dang, he got them Jordans. Yeah, bro. Well, you, you were walking on air if they had the air pockets, you know? Hence the name, Air Jordan. That's right, dude. But uh, 
something funny just to, to piggyback on that, bro, is, you know, it's it's right before Christmas break. We're out there playing on the uh, on the playground. And and back then, man, you know, it was it was the well, yeah, it was the 90s. And, you know, the playground still had rocks and gravel like they hadn't been smart enough to put rubber pellets and stuff yeah. now that you see or the wood chips. You know, they had rocks, bro. And of course, man, I remember there was a little scuffle going on um, at the playground and one of my other friends had thrown a rock and hit this dude in his, in his front tooth, bro, and chipped it. So that was before Christmas break. When we come back from Christmas break, you know, we walk in and I'm, and I see his shoes and I'm like, Oh bro, you got them blacks, man. Those are nice and all this stuff. And he's, and he smiles real big and he still had the chip tooth, bro. So I'm like, <laughs> I go dude, you still got that chip tooth. And he is like, yeah, man. He goes, my parents gave me the choice. I can either get my tooth fixed or I can get these Jordans. No way, yeah, bro. Homie got the swag instead. Yeah, bro. He said, drip's more important. I said, I, <laughs> I'm with you, dog. That is um, backwood right there, man. Shout out to Jeremy H., bro, for just keeping it real, man. Hey, man. <laughs> I'm going to look him up once we get off this. Jeremy, we hope you still don't have that chip <laughs> tooth, man, and uh, the Jordans didn't hold you back back in third grade from getting that thing fixed. Anyways. Yeah. Dudes, share a story with us. If, if you've got a memorable moment surrounding either Michael Jordan and or the shoes, we'd love to hear about it. Hit us on social media at Donuts with Dudes. Email us at info at Donuts with Dudes. And for our second story this week, Anthony, hit him with that track. Problem, yo, I'll solve it. Watch me take this color cube and help you resolve it. Wanna solve your Ruby's cube? First, you gotta pray. Nah, I'm only kidding. Let me show you the way. See, first, you get the top, which is relatively easy. It all starts out with a simple TC. Align your T with the colors on the side. Let's finish up the top by these rules you must abide. Down, bottom, up, pops a corner up. I said, down, bottom, up, pops a corner up again. Down, bottom, up, pops a corner up. Yeah, down, bottom, up, down, bottom, up, down, bottom, up. Down bottom up. Yo, I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm going to learn this. I promise you. I'm going to learn that song. I'm going to be showing everybody how to do this stuff. (laughs) That that is our goal for the next week is to try to (laughs) remember that rap. And because that takes us right into our second story, man. So there is a 21 year old guy named Max Park who just set the world record in solving a Rubik's cube, a three by three by three Rubik's cube. In 3.1 seconds, which the record previously was 3.7 seconds. But man, this is kind of a neat story. Just a little bit more backstory into Max's life. Max is, uh, like we said, 21 years old. He's diagnosed autistic. And um, that's kind of why this story hits a little close to home for me is that my oldest daughter is diagnosed autistic too as well. And so I kind of can empathize with some of the stories surrounding Max's story and his embark on becoming the world record holder for solving this Rubik's Cube. What's also staggering on top of that is his backstory, you know, starting out in his life, Max wasn't even able to open up a water bottle, much less solve a Rubik's Cube. Anthony, have you ever solved a Rubik's Cube before? No, sir. Not legitimately. I remember when I was probably like seven or eight, I took the stickers off and... uh, (laughs) 
and made them match up that way. <laughs> it counts, man, right? Hey, hey, I'm not, you're the first person I admitted that to. Well, I've never done it before <laughs> either in my entire life. And if you watch the video of this kid do it, I know probably listeners on, on the podcast are kind of like, okay, cool. You solved a Rubik's Cube. And I mean, that, that, that is astounding in and of itself, but there was a whole sit down for this. I mean, they had lasers that were watching him picking it up and setting it back down. And there was just a big uproar as soon as he sets it down and breaks the record. Obviously, this is, this is a deal. This is apparently there's a whole community right. behind all this, man. And so last thing that I thought was really neat. He's also the world record holder for not only just the three by three by three cube, but all the way up into a seven by seven by seven cube. Every single one of the cubes going up by number all the way between three and seven, three by three by three, all the way up to seven by seven by seven. This kid holds a record in every single one of them. That's crazy, bro. Crazy. I didn't even know they had four by fours by fours or any of that, or even the seven by seven by seven. I've never seen one. Have you? No, I haven't. Actually, now I'm lying because now that I think about it, I have seen a two by two. You ever seen a two by two? Yes, I have seen those before. Yeah. Now that's one I can do. I can yeah. do the two by two, bro. <laughs> they have a society surrounding two by two and uh, world record holders, bro. I might enter that. <laughs> Let us know when you do and um, donuts with dudes is sponsoring me. Right, absolutely. <laughs> Guys, go check out Max Park. We, we're going to put a link in the show notes of him solving this Rubik's cube. Pretty outstanding. Pretty cool. But hit us in our show notes too, as well, if you want to drop a line. And sometimes some of these old games like this will have nostalgia kind of attached to it. So if you want to drop us a story or tell us how, how quickly you can solve a Rubik's Cube, hit us up, info at Donuts with Dudes, or in the show notes, and you can hit us on social media. And for our third story, hey, Cam, let me ask you this, bro. Have you been watching or seen any of the stuff about uh, the New York City skyline turning orange this week? Yeah, with the, uh, with the fires going on in Canada. Yeah. However, some people have been saying that there's more to it than that. Did you hear about something being seen flying through the sky over there? Yeah, I saw that, man. It kind of makes you wonder, man. But the real story to this that's just starting to make some headway right now, man, is that story about... Uh, the Las Vegas UFO or alien sighting. So on April 30th, uh, so that, think about this. Look what time it, look where we're at now. We're middle of Mar- or middle of June, right? Middle of June. And this event happened on April 30th. So it's taken, you know, two and a half months to kind of, or a month and a half, right? To kind of surface yeah. uh, or to become a viral story. So anyways, um, super long story short, there's a, uh, there's a family, they um, have a yard uh, where they work on vehicles and that sort of thing. They have a forklift back there, and, and one of the uh, kids was working on the forklift. Well, they hear this loud bang, right? They hear this crash. Him and his brother go, they're scared, they go, they go check it out. And when they're looking in their backyard, looking at the forklift, and they say that they can see two beans that they can't really describe. I mean, the, the description that they say is, you know, that they are eight to 10 foot tall beings with these crazy looking eyes. When he was interviewed and he's actually talking about this, he said that when he first saw it, it was like a cloaking device. He said that 
they looked in the yard and you, you couldn't see anything, but it was really blurry. And he said that he had paralysis as well to where they, he couldn't move his body. He felt like he was in a trance or hypnotized, right? Well, when he comes out of that, they're trying to look around and they see that they see these two beings hiding behind the forklift, bro. So they call the police and here's what that sounded like. Like an eight-foot person beside it and another one's inside and it has big eyes and looking at us and it's still there. Okay, where is this on your property? Uh, in my backyard. I swear to God, this is not a joke. This is actually weird. So you terrified of it. So there's two people or two subjects that are in your backyard? Correct, and they're very large. They're okay. like eight foot. Nine feet, ten foot, I don't know. They're, they, look like, they look like aliens to us. Big eyes, they have big eyes. Okay. Like, like, I can't explain it. And big mouth. They're shiny eyes, and, and they're not human. They're 100% they're not human. Okay. So my question is, and I haven't done enough research behind this to see what's going on. But his old dude just got a bad batch of shroomies over there. <laughs> maybe took a, maybe took one extra drop of something that could be just uh, hey. mind-altering. <laughs> Bro, well, hey, man, you never know, dude. If, if, if this had been in Florida, I'd probably say bath salts, right? <laughs> so I don't know, bro. But, he is in Vegas, right? Yeah, I mean, hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, if you've seen that movie. Well, geez, dude. So, hey, it's a kid, though, man. And, he, and he's, been, um, he's been interviewed. He's, you actually, I don't know if you're on TikTok, but if you're on TikTok or anybody's on TikTok, they can just type in or, or search um, Las Vegas UFO 2023, and a lot of this stuff's going to come up. But what's even more interesting is that there were witnesses in the neighborhood that had seen this as well. And when they called the police, police show up. They've got body cam footage and a ring doorbell camera footage of this, what looks like a meteorite or some sort of you know, object from the sky coming down and crashing. One thing that's even not more notable is they said that you know, whenever they went to uh, go investigate the scene in the backyard, they could see this spot um, in the gravel where it had, whatever it was, had landed because there was an actual circle where this thing was. And the kid says that's where he even saw, that's where he got the paralysis from when he was staring in this direction of where this circle was and he couldn't see anything. Oh, I didn't know all that. I didn't know they had, this kid had like got paralyzed and all kinds of stuff too as well. Yeah, man. Um, he he says it was more of like uh, that. He felt like he was in a trance. That uh, you know, when he's looking in this in the direction of the crash, he got uh, real tense. That's just from a bad batch, right there. Hey, bro. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. So what's even funnier is that they have footage from the when the um, from when the police officer went and did the investigation, and you know, towards the end of of their conversation, the cop says, "Hey, man." If this thing comes back, take care of it yourself because I'm not coming back. <laughs> you're going to shoot aliens, bro. I'm going to give it a try. I'll tell I you mean, what. <laughs> you think an alien, you think you can shoot an alien, dude? I'm going to try to run. I'm going to try to hide. <laughs> um, I, it just depends on the situation, man. If I got encountered, I probably would be heartbeat pounding. I, I, I mean, honestly, I'm probably trying to find a bunker, bro. I mean, dude, taking my guns with me, but um, what's even scarier is that he said uh, once they all got in the house and the, the police had left, I believe, you know, that they hear footsteps on the house, bro. Oh, I man. don't even know. 
I don't even know what I would do, man. I mean, but I, I, I do have to say this, man. Like I, there's just too much evidence as of lately. I feel like the evidence has kind of become more and more. I mean, heck, our, our own government has come out and admitted to uncovering thousands of whether they just unidentifiable objects, whether it be, I don't know, but be bodies, spaceships, things of that nature. And there's just been too many. I mean, we, we, everybody's got a camera in their hand now. And I feel like there's just so many videos surrounding that. And I'm sure some of it could be clickbait and just generated Photoshop or whatever, too, as well, at some point in time. But I think there's just too much pointing to the fact that, man, yeah, there probably are UFOs surrounding us. And I think they're out there. And I, and I can't remember the story surrounding it, but whenever the, it came out in either, it was either October of last year or October of 2021, when they decided to release it. And it was like almost just a very convenient time to release the story because it was around something else that was just kind of happening. And it almost felt like a, oh yeah, let's slip this in under this whole entire big story. Yes. So <laughs> you know? so what it was, man, is it was the height of uh, 2020 when all this these things were going on. And then they just kind of decided to go ahead and release these CIA documents that had been classified as, as you were distracted by other things. Guys, what are your <laughs> thoughts about this? We'd like to know what your opinion is. And actually, I'm going to put a poll in today's show. Do you think that there are extraterrestrials? Do you believe that some of these UFO stories are real? We'll have a poll in the show notes. Well, you know what, man? If you want to go do your own research, I'd say go ahead and just uh, go check out the CIA.gov. That's where, that's where the documents are. It's public record. You can go look it up and... Yeah, and FBI, the FBI's website has it too as well. So um, go check it out there too as well. We'll be back in a minute. But now a word from our sponsors. At some point in our adult lives, we may have to turn our attention to the needs and safety of our parents and grandparents as they age. They've done so much for us, and it's our turn to make sure they have the best quality of life. I founded HomeSpark because seniors deserve to have the very best care available so they can age with dignity and remain independent longer. Our caregivers provide wellness checks, companionship, transportation, meal preparation, and more of what you think is important. To learn more about our personalized care plan, visit us at homesparkcare.com. HomeSpark, we care for people. Well, dudes, today in our bakery, we got a really cool guest, in my opinion. Uh, his name is Donovan French, and he brings over 15 years of healthcare experience with large networks. And so today we brought him on the show to discuss all things men's health and just kind of what's going on in the healthcare space, period. On top of that, Donovan has a lot of hands in a lot of different things uh, as far as being an entrepreneur. He's got investments in, in real estate, commercial real estate, and in other small businesses too as well. Uh, but the main point is Donovan is a father of four and uh, a husband to his lovely wife. Welcome to the studio, Donovan French. All right. Well, thanks for having me, dudes. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> thanks for the warm welcome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, Donovan, today, how would you describe the current state of healthcare right now? And what are some of the key challenges that you're running into as far as quality of care for, for all citizens? Gosh, that's, a, that's such an important question and all-encompassing question. I guess let me start off by saying, you know, my views here are, are going to be my own personal views and not associated with any organization I might um, be associated with. But, um, you know, I think like any major um, challenge at scale, 
it's probably multifactorial, right? Certain parts of our healthcare system that are thriving. And I would say, you know, a lot of these startups around the primary care um, and ambulatory care space is doing very, very well. Um, and then you can, you know, point to, you know, big provider systems, hospitals, especially that are, you know, currently struggling, you know, pretty mightily. Um, you know, they're such a integral part of the heartbeat of, of communities in terms of the care that they offer um, to all of our communities across, you know, the, the economic or racial or, you know, whatever spectrum you want to, you know, kind of talk about. So I think, you know, there, there are a lot of challenges, you know, one is insurance coverage, you know, you can, whether you want to talk about Medicaid expansion in states or just the ability for people to purchase, you know, insurance products that are affordable and that will cover enough to make a difference in their overall healthcare is, is a huge challenge uh, for us. The, you know, rising cost of everything is, is driving healthcare costs significantly. So that's a, that's another challenge, whether you're talking about supply chain stuff or you're talking about staffing or the, you know, cost of that on a healthcare system. So, you know, we've got real big challenges. I would say overall, you know, I would, I would give the U.S. healthcare system a, maybe a C, C minus in terms of, you know, it, it, and it really just depends on what your goals are, right? You think about healthcare at a macro level and, and you start looking at populations and how you're doing on taking care of infant mortality or mortality rates in general. And, you know, maybe we're not performing as well as we could as one of the richest nations or the richest nation in the world. But if you start thinking about it in terms of, you know, highly acute or quaternary care and the things you can do to save a life, there's no other place in the world you'd rather go than, than the U.S. So again, it depends on what your goals are, what you're trying to achieve. And we've got a lot of work to do ahead of us to make sure that all those people, everyone, you know, has access to at least a certain level of healthcare. So Donovan, you know, being in healthcare, I, I want to say probably about 10 years ago, I noticed that there was more of a trend on hospital systems really trying to control their costs, especially with Medicare dollars. Is that still a buzz thing where they're like Medicare is running out? Well, so I will say, yes, I, it, it's, it's a constant concern. And I would say that Medicare is really forcing hospitals to start to figure out how to control their costs because they're just not going to continue to pay the rates that they used to pay. And especially in the inpatient setting, I think they're forcing, I just don't want to say forcing, they are helping hospitals transition a lot of things out of the inpatient setting and into an outpatient setting, which is lower cost, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. So I'll just use the joint replacements for, as an example. And, and uh, some health systems have reported as many as 45 to 50% of joint replacements moving from the inpatient to the outpatient setting. Well, that reimbursement's a lot lower. So you got to figure out, you know, how to, um, you know, manage that in a cost-effective manner if you're on the hospital side. But those patients haven't seen any kind of a worse outcome because of it, right? So you can recover just as well at home as you can in a hospital bed for, you know, the vast majority or at least half of the population of those, those joint replacements. So, you know, I think, I think in some ways, you know, that's good. Um, if you ask a hospital CEO, he will tell you that a Medicare does not cover the cost of the, of the um, care of the patients that, that they serve, right? So... Um, and Medicaid is like 80% of Medicare, right? Or, or in some places less than that. Overall, when 50% of your business or let's just say 40% of your businesses uh, are those government payers, you know, they start to look for, to try to make that up on contracting with private payers. And so you start to see those costs of, of you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever the, you know, the group may be continue to rise, um, both in premiums and then the amount that they pay for the care on the other side. 
that isn't really happening as much anymore either because those, you know, your cost can only rise at a certain rate before it becomes unsustainable. And I think we're starting to get to that. Um, so hospitals are, you know, I mean, they are in a, in a bad position. I don't know if you've paid attention to any of the industry magazines recently, but I just saw a Becker's article that said 293 hospitals right now are at risk of closing their doors across the country. Most of them rural facilities just because they just can't, they don't have the volume to keep up with demands that they, that they need and they don't have the reimbursement rates that they used to have. They're really at risk. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't, I wouldn't want to be in those communities that doesn't have, you know, the ability to go to an emergency room or, you know, have that level of care that you need from a hospital. So, so yeah, I mean, the, the answer to your question is yes, hospitals are focused on it. They're focused on it daily. Problem is, is you have, we'll just take the local hospital here, you know, $300 million asset or whatever it is. It's just this big capital asset that sister, you gotta, you gotta heat it. You gotta cool it. You gotta staff it. 24 seven, 365, right? So there's just a lot of costs associated with it. And at some level, in order to maintain, you know, good quality care, you have to be able to, you have to be able to do that at a certain level. It's a, it's a big challenge. Jeez. I, I couldn't imagine living in an area where you're probably an hour out of town and you rely on this smaller hub of a ER, whatever you want to call it. And then that going away. And then, I mean, that, that travel distance is a matter of life, life or death sometimes, especially if you're having a heart attack, stroke, anything like that. And to be able to get to an intervention and that kind of going away, that I can see how that is a detrimental cost to America and, and just health in, in general. So obviously we're a podcast that's more geared towards men's health. So if it's okay, I want to kind of steer us in that direction. Are there any national initiatives or any programs that maybe you and your organization are working on, or just maybe from a, a policy standpoint or from our government that you guys kind of have you got your eye on? Right. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, there are many men's health initiatives out there. One that really comes to mind was I saw on the um, HHS website was the Healthy People Twenty Thirty. Um, I know that our our um, we've got certain providers that are are tied into that. And it is a national initiative for men's health overall. Interestingly enough, it's despite what the social and political narrative might say in this country, in 2023, it can be a challenge to be a man and uh, on multiple fronts. So, you know, you think about you're more likely, to, we're more likely to die from heart disease. You know, we're more likely to suffer from depression. We're more likely to um, be hurt in a workplace injury. We're more likely to uh, commit suicide. And so, you know, I think there are real challenges um, when you think about it in the macro as it relates to, you know, men's health. And so um, this, this initiative with uh, Healthy People 2030 is really just focused. It's got a number of indicators that it's tracking across uh, multiple fronts. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, they're, they're looking at the, what you would call the low-hanging fruit. Let's reduce the amount of alcohol use that, you know, men take in. Let's reduce smoking. Let's, you know clean up diets, let's exercise more, you know, kind of some of those things. And, you know, if you can implement those at a population level, then you should start to see some of that, you know, those national incidences come down. But I would say overall, I think getting back to the basics is what's important, I think, for us, right? You know, you start to think about drinking enough water and going to sleep, you know, and getting at least seven hours of sleep, doing it at a consistent time every night. Uh, eating nutritious food, exercising three times a week at least, 
And then the, the discipline to do that, even when you're not motivated, you know, those are the things, right. And, and it's like, um, and then, you know, then the next step is engage with a primary care physician, right. And get those screenings that you need to get at the appropriate times, whether that's a prostate exam or your colonoscopy or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and it's just, um, it takes a level of, well, you know, as men, we don't always want to admit when we need help or that we, something isn't right and we can tough it up. But I don't know that that's always the best policy for our overall health. Taking the, the viewpoint that if I want to continue to be that tough guy for my family and provider and, and be that person for my kids and stuff like that, well, then maybe I need to recognize when, you know, and where um, it's appropriate to, to seek that help and make sure that, you know, it's just like getting a tune up for your car. We, we would never miss that, right? I mean, you can go get your oil chain and all that stuff. So it's, it's similar. Hundred percent agreed. It, that that something you just said has been a common theme, and I feel like it's been said in every single one of our podcasts up to this point that we have this "suck it up" mentality. Mm-hmm. Whether that was instilled from us from a fatherly figure or society instilled that in us, that as men, that's how we're supposed to act: is just suck it up, deal with it, and just move on. That can be a strength to a certain extent. Right. I think there can be a, a mental resilience that is built from that, but it can also be a flaw if we're disregarding and not paying attention to things like our health. Absolutely. Mom is mom. She wants to take care of everything and remove every barrier. And, you know, she's the nurturer and, and that's wonderful. But we also, you know, agree that I'm the one that's going to challenge them and give them opportunities to fail and challenge themselves physically and emotionally and all of those things. And so it's interesting to try to create those uh, environments where they can learn how to fail and, and, and make them tough it out and shake it off. You know, that's one of my favorite words for my kids, shake it off, you know? Um, and, and it works, but you know, in the absence of what I had to deal with, which is like, let's, we'll stop short of childhood trauma, right? (laughs) It's, it's, uh, let's do it in a controlled environment in which they can actually grow and learn from rather than, you know, get to that point where they're just like, Oh, you know, I could, I could take on anything, you know, it's like, like within reason. So Donovan, if it's okay, I'd like to jump into costs as far as it goes into, to healthcare. And I, I can see you taking a deep breath as I'm asking this question, but you know, I, I've read that a couple of health systems are in the red right now, especially after the pandemic. And, you know, what does that mean for healthcare systems? You talked about two, over 200 systems possibly going under. Can we see something like we're seeing with banks going on right now? Just banks going under? Is it, could healthcare systems kind of be following suit with that? Well, it's a big concern. You're right. So we talked about the 293 rural hospitals, but, you know, there are a lot of big systems out there that are posting you know, billion dollar losses, quarterly losses. Um, and that's obviously not sustainable either. And I would say every one of those systems probably has some level of analysis going on, um, looking at their portfolios and, you know, what's working and what isn't and what do we keep doing and what do we not. And, you know, whether you're talking at the local level or, or big national systems, they're, they are focused on figuring out how to make their systems sustainable. And in some cases, that may mean that certain hospitals need to, you know, go and, and or certain services or streamlining the way they operate and, and manage these things and, and cutting out overhead. I mean, all that's usually always the first place you start. Right. But it, it is it is certainly something that that most people in the industry are watching. We're not seeing a huge um, rebound in volume. And when I say volume, 
ER visits or clinic visits or hospital admissions and things like that, we are still pre-pandemic lower or we're lower than pre-pandemic numbers. 2019 was, was a better year than 2023 in terms of volume. So it's interesting. People aren't utilizing the healthcare system in the same way that they used to, like outpatient procedure volume, kind of like, you know, they may have wanted to have before that they're holding off on now or whatever, but it's not, it just isn't coming back at the same rate. Like elective surgeries. Yeah. Elective surgeries, things like that. So, um, you know, I think, I think, you know, one, getting inflation under control is important Two, the staffing issues and um, one, finding the right staff and, and two, you know, being able to pay them. And then I would say the real question for me is if you can, if you can get to a sustainable point, right. And I'll, and I'll say this on both sides of the, of, of the fence. When we talk about lowering healthcare costs, it's different than when like Medicare and Medicaid or government payers talk about lowering costs, right? Because they're just talking about lowering their spend on the amount of healthcare they provide to Medicare enrollees. We're talking about lowering our costs so that we can make it on the amount of money they're going to pay us, right? But the question is, is where does the consumer and the taxpayer, are they ever going to see that translate into lower costs for them? I don't think that's clear yet. And so, you know, certainly it's not going to be, it's not going to work until health systems can actually be sustainable and you start to see a real decrease in the amount of Medicare dollars spent. But the problem is we're seeing about 10,000 people a day age into Medicare. So it, it, and, and the other side of that coin is I think when they established Medicare, but I, I think it was like two or three to one workers to beneficiary. So three workers to a beneficiary or three, versa? three workers in the workforce for every Medicare beneficiary. Okay. Right. So I think that number now, Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. When it started, it was like 20 something to one. Now it's like two to three to one. And so the amount of tax revenue to support it is a lot lower, or at least that ratio. Right. And then you've got this growth that's just, you know, accelerating and will for another 20 years. So they're, they're really just concerned about being able to keep Medicare sustainable. And then you, you take into account burnout from these clinicians because obviously they're, they're having to care for more people based off that ratio. Right. Right. And you're trying to pay them more to keep them on board, which goes into your cost and more. So it's just right. Well, and those are the people that utilize the healthcare too, which, which isn't a bad thing for health systems, except for the fact that they don't make money in Medicare right now. But if, if they get to that point, you know, then the volumes are there because it's the 65 plus that's, you know, driving the 80% of the healthcare spend. So we, we kind of went into this in this last question, but I think there's the statistic that, or I think it's 40% of people can't even cover a $400 emergency bill visit. Mm. You know, obviously there is a huge burden on healthcare systems when it comes to their payout and your margins are being squeezed tighter and tighter as we go on. But is there anything that you guys are doing to try to help pass some of those cost savings on to the, the patient themselves? I don't want to speak for my health system because it's going to be different across every market and every, you know, but I would say there are opportunities for, we do a lot of charity care and we do a lot of write-offs. We do a lot of what we would call community benefit and different programs and things like that. Um, I think, you know, if, if somebody, you know, is needing care and truly can't, you know, cover that themselves, there, there are options for them. Um, but overall, you know, I, I think the system in general is not, again, I, I don't know that we've proven, you know, that cutting out costs 
on either side, whether you're talking about the, the taxing side or the, or the delivery side is translated into lower costs for the patients because we just see costs continuing to rise. So but we have a handle on that yet. And I, you know, I wish I could say that, you know, we've got a clear strategy and we're moving towards it and it's starting to get better, but it that hasn't proven to be so yet. Got to get it, got to get a hold of your costs and, and your spend first before that can translate to. Well, you got to have a sustainable system. I mean, you got to have a system that you, you know, that you don't wonder if it's going to, you know, if it's going to, you know, be able to pay off its obligations next year or something like that. You got to have, you know, you've got to be in a place where, um, you know, you're viable. Employees know they have a place to go to work day in and day out. And, you know, you're not having to do layoffs every other six months or nine months or whatever the case may be. And then I think once you get that under control, then you can start to think about, you know, how you deploy those resources to better care for the communities that you serve. How about the tech side of healthcare? What, uh, what, what type of medical treatments, breakthroughs that you guys are kind of seeing right now? Is there anything kind of neat coming down the pike that, that, that should be coming out in the next couple of years that could be very uh, transformative for diseases, things like that? I, yeah, sure. You know, I, I mean, there's so much, right? I mean, it, it is a, it's an incredible time in healthcare, uh, both on the pharmaceutical side, the diagnostic side. Um, you know, you think about places like, you know, oncology, um, where you're seeing some really cool breakthroughs. Um, you know, I, I think though, where I would land right now, and it's kind of the hot topic anyway, is artificial intelligence or, you know, machine learning and, and, um, how it's being deployed in certain areas. I think there is a petition right now in front of the FDA to, um, I don't know if it's the FDA or the HHS, but anyway, to start to utilize machine learning in radiology. And, you know, I think it, it's uh, pretty clear that AI can look at images and detect abnormalities at a rate that is greater than potentially the human factor could do. So it's, um, it's interesting, you know, you start to have to think about what that means for, you know, certain specialties across provider systems, how relevant those will be into the future, and how you make a transition like that. Um, certainly, I think there's opportunities, especially in the diagnostic space, for AI to really transform what we're doing. Having said that, I think there's still a real, you know, big push, and we're seeing it across every system I, I deal with. But it's the, you know, collection, aggregation, and and um, deployment of big data. Mm. So you know, the more data you have, the the better you know these things can facilitate cost savings and productivity gains and all of those things. But I, you know, I think that that's where you're really going to see the big gains is in artificial intelligence and how we deploy it within healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting to see. Also going to drive up costs too, I'm sure. Right. Well, maybe not though. You know, I mean, you think about it in this way and you know, some people say, well, it's going to, it'll take over some medical specialties and it might, but there are other ones where it could just help expand the talked about access a little bit. You know, um, you know, rural communities, for example, you know, they may have one doctor um, and they may have no specialists, right? Or, you know, or not very many, not much access to specialists. I remember seeing, a, we did some studies when I first got here to Bryan College Station back in 2012, and we were looking at all the surrounding rural counties. And uh, one of the things we were looking at is uh, certain, this certain heart procedures. And the utilization was much lower out in the, in the surrounding areas. No, and we know those populations are not necessarily more healthy than what you would find right here in Bryan College Station. But what we had to ascertain is it's just, they don't have the access to those specialists. Um, and so they just weren't utilizing the healthcare that was available to them to get those procedures done. Um, and my guess is that that's probably pretty common across, you know, the clinical spectrum if you were to look at 
a lot of that coverage. And so, you know, I think, I think AI could potentially help us offset the ability to spread the access to healthcare. You could have one, you know, let's just say, you know, hypothetically, you could have one general practitioner, you know, overseeing, you know, an AI who's, you know, or a couple or, or multiple AI bots that are, you know, out there interfacing and diagnosing, you know, diseases with rural healthcare patients. He's, you know, just looking and signing off on their plans of care and diagnoses and, and moving on, you know, so um, it has the potential to really expand that. You know, one thing I can think of is just kind of how technology does a lot of entry-level positions amongst uh, industry. You know, you think about self-checkouts, point of sale things where you're ordering for yourself and you're not really even utilizing a, a somebody at a register. Um, I could see where there is the problem with staffing and the worker shortages that is right now, but I always, I can see them somehow having AI maybe being a receptionist and scheduling all these people and taking that human aspect out of it to save costs or something like that, you know? hundred percent. I, I would say, you know, I'm, 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 I was taking the more um, optimistic look at things. Um, there are those that feel like this could, you know, really transform the workforce to a point where half of it is unemployed. Right. And, you know, so you start to think about the implications for that and, and what we would do as humans to, you know, find meaning in, in industry um, in, in that kind of a situation. And I think, you know, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. As a strategist, I worry about it, right? I mean, I, you know, I interface with ChatGPT quite a bit, you know, for fun mostly, but I kind of use it, utilize it as a learning tool as well. But it can answer complex strategic questions that it, I have taken 15 years, you know, to develop a lot of these skills and it can do it in a matter of minutes and seconds. A lot of people say, you know, anything that's, you know, intellectually workforce kind of powered is at risk with this technology. It's going to be incumbent on people. One, I think don't shy away from it because it's coming. Um, learn how to utilize it to, you know, enhance what you do. And I think those people that do that will by far be more successful in a new, you know, kind of in a new age than those that just try to ignore it or, or stay away from it. It's kind of like when the first PCs were being made, personal computers, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of d divide back in those days. This is just going to take over my job. This is going to doomsday type stuff. And sure, it was that exact same thing. You learn to, to work with it and be good at utilizing the technology or you get left behind. Right, right, right. So, you know, maybe we'll all just be sitting around our houses um, painting and, and <laughs> drinking wine. You know, I don't know. But. <laughs> I can tell you this, I, through the pandemic, I think I missed a year where I didn't even go get my annual uh, checkup just because of everything else that was going on. And I wasn't sick, so I just didn't have time to, to go in there. And, and then plus COVID scare. I think that scared a lot of people out of offices, too. No, it absolutely did. As a matter of fact, we were talking about this. Um, Recently, you know, mammograms were one where people are really concerned about, and I think we're still watching the data as it goes along. But, you know, some people didn't come in for two years to get their mammograms, and certainly one year, and there was a time where they were not allowed to come in. You know, the, the state had shut down non-elective procedures, and so there were, you know, a lot of people missed their annual mammograms. And so we, we are watching to see if that led to an uptick in, you know, tumor findings and, and other things, or, or they're just a progression. I mean, it has real consequences, but I, you know, I think to answer your question, I'm a huge proponent of getting your screenings. Again, we're going back to, you know, we're men and we don't want to, you know, necessarily admit that we're 
mortal, but we are. And there's nothing wrong with going in and just, you know, getting your tune up and making sure that you're getting that screening, whether it's your prostate or, you know, getting your heart checked or, you know, whatever the case may be, go and do it. Um, you know, your doc, your primary care doctor will know when it's appropriate for your age and level of health. And, and, uh, so, you know, stay engaged with them and just, you know, treat your body like you would treat, uh, one of your favorite cars or something. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you don't treat care of your car well. Then <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I like the analogy and, right. and, and I appreciate all the, the wisdom you've, you've put on us today. And it just kind of helps us and our listeners kind of help understand what is healthcare going through today? Kind of help them understand, you know, how to be a good patient too as well, right? I think that for men, it's it's tough for us to to understand. We need to have an understanding of what we're walking into. What are these people, clinicians, dealing with on the back end? And I think that if you have an understanding of that, you can be you can be a better patient. So, well, I'm glad to you that you had me, and you know, I guess I would leave you with. Um, I don't know that we answered any questions necessarily, like, you know, there's no fixes, right? Like no silver bullets, but I would say, you know, again, go back to the basics, take care of yourself first from there, understand that there's a big transition coming in healthcare delivery in general. It's going to be exciting. Some of it's going to be painful. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm an optimist. So I believe that at some point we'll get to a point where every person, regardless of your background, you will be able to receive, you know, good quality healthcare. And, and that's, you know, the goal, I think, for uh, many of us in the industry. Be patient. And the best thing you can do, though, is take care of yourself. I mean, it's your genetics are one thing and your behaviors are another. You can't control your genetics necessarily, but you certainly can control your behaviors. And so, you know, those are so important to keeping yourself healthy and, and well. Let's take that advice, dudes. Appreciate you for coming in, Donovan. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Well, dudes, that's it for our show this week. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Special shout out to Donovan French for joining us this week in the Baker to discuss healthcare. And also, as always, thanks for our sponsors, HomeSpark Home Care. That does it for this week's episode, guys. As always, you can find us on our social medias at Donuts with Dudes, or you can email us at info at donutswithdudes.com. Check us out next week. And until then, take care of yourself. And tune in next week where we'll be whipping up more fresh hot topics.